They, they plan six months out and I mean, they are just ready to engage all the time. They see it kind of as a celebration of love and ways to just kind of be in the moment with their significant other. Then you've got like a significant portion of the population that just kind of plays along because uh, that's February 14th. And I think there's a big section there. Um, but then there's just some people that are anti-Valentine's Day. Can I be honest? They just see it as a shameless ploy um, for greeting cards to make money. Uh, I think it's about a $19 billion holiday. Um, my earliest Valentine's Day memory um, takes me back to elementary school. So I want you to think back to your elementary days, you know, your days and the world of shoe boxes, right? And tissue paper and classroom lists with names on them, right? And I remember, um, I don't know if this was kindergarten or first grade, but I remember getting the, the list of people and just being excited. My kids go through this now uh, when it's Valentine's Day and trying to be just very specific about which card I'm going to give to each kid. So, um, you know, there's always a hierarchy. I mean, you, you don't judge me, but I mean, even in first grade, I mean, so like my, my you know, my closest friends that, you know, they get Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. And if I didn't know you very well, I mean, you get a Stormtrooper or Chewbacca. Um, so... Uh, but I, I tried my best, you know, to, to communicate thoughtfulness and, uh, to everyone in my class. And so, um, till I opened up my own box and I just began to read them. Several of them were meaningful, but then I got this one that says to my teacher on Valentine's day. Thank you so much for being a great teacher, right? So one of the kids, it looks like they just went down the, the list of people and just randomly stuffed cards and didn't notice that uh, he had actually given me uh, a teacher card. And I want you to think about that experience and I want you to contrast it with uh, this from Abigail Adams. Uh, she wrote this letter to her husband, um, John Adams, who would be the second president of the United States, they wrote over uh, a thousand love letters to one another, making them one of the most romantic couples in history. So contrast my random Valentine's Day card experience with this. She says, should I draw you the picture of my heart? It would be what I hope you would love, though it contained nothing new. The early possession you obtained there and the absolute power you have ever maintained over it leaves not the smallest place unoccupied. I look back to the early days of our acquaintance and the friendship and as to the days of love and innocent with an indescribable pleasure. I have never seen near a score of years roll over our heads with an, with an affection heightened and improved by time nor have the dreary years of absence in the smallest degree effaced from my mind the image of the dear, untitled man to whom I gave my heart. So those are two pretty stark contrasts about ways to process love. Think about the effect of John Adams receiving that probably... Uh, several years into their marriage and his public life. Um, but I think if most of us are honest, we tend to view God's love the same way that I viewed that early Valentine's Day card. 
we kind of think maybe not that God doesn't love us, but we're one of about 7 billion people. So we're probably just on a list somewhere, probably just an afterthought, you know. And in the difficult times of our life, we feel forgotten, right? The, the reality is when we view God's love like that, it empties it of its power, right? It's easy to um, push aside love like that. But when love is personal, when love is specific, when it's spoken into the tender places of your life, it's hard to ignore. And as we're going to look at God's word this morning in Hosea chapter 2, when God speaks specific words of love, it's transformative. Like it actually changes his people. And he does that not when we're at our best, but when we're at our worst. And that's the good news of Hosea chapter 2. And so if you have your Bible open, could you stand with me as we read Hosea chapter 2? I'm going to read verses 14 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness And speak tenderly to her. This is God speaking of his people. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever." I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will so her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that in these moments that we have together, that you would speak right to the tender places of our lives, that you would speak your love powerfully and provocatively and transformatively. I pray that we would be different as the result of encountering you in your fullness. Father, to do that, we need you to help us to pay attention. We need you to be at work in our hearts and in our lives. Father, I know I need your help now to 
proclaim this word to these folks that I love so much. I pray that you would empower me and that Jesus would be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we find ourselves in Hosea chapter 2 this morning. In the last several weeks, we looked at Hosea chapter 1 and Hosea chapter 3, which actually tells the story of the prophet Hosea. Um, if you weren't with us, um, Hosea was a prophet that received a, a pretty unique call from God. God told him when he called him, he said, I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute because that's what it's like for me to have a relationship with my people. So chapters 1 and chapters 3 tell the story of Hosea and Gomer. And there's this real um, powerful coming together of Hosea and Gomer, but their relationship is rocky, not just because of Gomer's past, but because in the present she begins to go back to her life of prostitution. She begins to have children out of wedlock. Ultimately, Gomer is, is a woman that finds herself in the arms of another man, but that man was not kind and tender like Hosea. This man would abuse her and use her, and she found herself on an auction block being sold as a slave. And that's where we have this picture of Hosea and his redeeming love that ultimately points us to the ultimate redeeming love in Jesus Christ. That's what chapters 1 and 3 are. And chapter 2 is the story from God's perspective. So Hosea and Gomer are supposed to be an illustration of something that's going on in the nation of Israel. Chapter 2 is God in all its vivid detail outlining his case against his people. So I didn't read verses 1 through 13 because, frankly, they are lewd and they are crude. And they are specific ways that all the people of God had forgotten that they had been loved by God, they had been looking for other lovers. And so that's what makes the good news of verses 14 through 23 so stark and so powerful, right? I mean, I think God gives us this picture of Gomer so that we would identify, so that we would know that there is no sin that is too big for God to redeem our past from. And that's specifically what he's speaking, the good news of verses 14 through 23 into and he says look at verse 14 therefore behold i will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her this is the language of romance this is god promising to woo and win back his wandering bride so how does god speak to us when we stray how does God speak to us when we wander? How does God speak to us when we would rather run away from him instead of running to him? God speaks tenderly to us. He says, I will allure her. God is saying, beyond everything, beyond the shadow of a doubt, you are wanted. You are wanted for relationship with me. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. Like, all right, this isn't just a time for us just to kind of, you know, fill here. This, this is God through his word saying, every person in this room, I want to have a personal and a specific relationship with you. 
I want it to be passionate. I want it to be exclusive. I want it to be intimate. And and you don't have to have everything together to have that relationship. Actually, I'm the one that's going to produce this relationship with you. And I'm going to go after you even in the midst of your sin. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's good news for a lot of us that grew up with a a fear-based relationship with God. I mean, I don't know how many of you kind of grew up like that, kind of picturing God as either up there with his arms folded or somehow wanting to keep us at bay. But no, this is a passionate plea from God himself. Hey, you are wanted, you are loved, you are desired for relationship. And this is important because... Um, the history of the people of God reads a little bit like the side of a shampoo bottle. Have you guys ever read the side of a shampoo bottle, right? I mean, it's, it makes me feel like a moron, but I mean, it's got like specific directions on the side. It's like, hey, I want you to wet your hair, and then you want to lather, and then you want to rinse, and then you want to repeat, right? Well, the history of the Old Testament, I mean, you can think about it like a shampoo bottle. I mean, basically, the people of God, they would wander, they would stray, They would sin. They would fall away. God would pursue them. They would come back. They would sin, repeat, so on and so forth, right? The people of God would be caught in this sin and shame cycle. And I bet if you're honest with yourself, we all find ourselves with well-worn patterns of sin that end up repeating themselves over and over. So, Hosea chapter 2 is how does that sin and that shame cycle begin to actually change in our lives? How does God make us different, right? Because their history over and over was they were going to go back to the same things over and over. Our own temptation is to struggle with the same things over and over. What's going to be different as the result? And we see um, that's the big idea we're going to look at this morning. How does God help us break the shame and the sin cycle that exists in our life. Because the reality is most of us don't struggle like in just a ton of ways, right? I mean, there's, there's a few things that always trip us up. There's a few ways that we always fall, right? And, and for the most part, we're always aware of those things. Well, it's those things this morning, those things that you're mostly aware of, those things that you are tempted to give up hope that God actually wants to speak this good news into. And the good news about this chapter is there's not a multiplicity of ways to change. Like there's not a list. It's not a a self-improvement list. This is not about your effort, but this is about the promise and the power of God coming to rest on our lives. And it has to do with a phrase that you'll see in verses 16, 18, and 21. It says, in that day. That day is, in the Old Testament, it's the day of the Lord. It's the day of salvation. It's the day that God breaks into the lives of his people and brings salvation. And in particular, chapters 2, verses 14 through 23 is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the Old Testament because as we begin to see this whole thing unfold, it's one story with one hero and the climax of that story is the cross of Jesus Christ. So the way that the sin and the shame cycle is broken in our lives is to focus on that one spot where his love is most fully displayed on the cross. 
focusing in on his love and his power for us there. Notice, there's not any commands for you in these verses. This is all promise. This is all gospel. This is all grace. So, how do we respond to promises? Well, it depends on how trustworthy the one making the promise is, right? But because this is God and because he did not withhold his own son and because he proved that he's the way of salvation by raising him from the dead, we cling to these promises. We believe these promises. We wrestle for these promises in community. These are the promises that we hold out to the world, right? That sin and shame are not the end of our story, but the triumph of the Son of God on the cross begins to redefine a whole new reality for us. So how does God break the sin and the shame cycle in our lives? First, he transforms our failure into a doorway of hope. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor. That's, that's a key phrase we're going to talk about. We're going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This is God saying, I'm going to take you back to the place where we first met, essentially. I'm going to take you back to that spot. I'm going to take you back to the place of the Exodus. I'm going to take you back to the wilderness, and I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm going to bring you back for relationship. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to transform all of your failures into a doorway of hope. Now, that is a massive promise of the gospel. So you probably aren't familiar with the Valley of Achor. That's not something that I readily talk about. But if you want to read about it, you can read about it in Joshua chapter 7. It is the story of Achan. So this is a story that happened essentially when the people of God first came into the promised land of Israel. Uh, They were warned to stay away from the idols of the land. But Achan, he kind of saw these idols that they were worth a lot of money. And so he just kind of took them and he put them in his tent. And ultimately what happened as a result of Achan taking those idols into his tent was the people of God were defeated. right? And so ultimately this was uncovered and this was discovered. And they ultimately stoned Achan for his sin. And what happened in the valley of Achor, which really means the valley of trouble, they took all the stones that they threw upon Achan and they made this massive memorial, right? So the very first thing that they experienced when they walked in the promised land of God is this monument to their failure, right? So this is physical, this is real, this is visible, this is demonstrative for them, right? So they would, every time that they would walk by this memorial, it would be a testimony of their failure. So what God is saying is, I'm going to take the, the mountain of your failure, the monument that exists to all the ways that you failed, and I'm going to turn them into a doorway of hope. Now, that's good news for us because that means that our past is not the end of our stories. We all have memorials of failure that exist in our life. Am I right? Right. I mean, I mean, you can just walk around your house. Right. I mean, that's where I lost it with my kids. Right. 
This is where I committed that sin that I promised that I would never do again, right? Sometimes those are physical places. Sometimes they're just broken places in our heart where we are dominated by the perspective that we have of ourselves in the past. Well, the good news of this passage, because of the day of the Lord, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, is that God promises, right? This isn't a suggestion. I'm going to turn your greatest failures into a doorway of hope. Is that good news? Amen, right? This, this is God saying, I'm going to redeem your story. So he's, this morning, if you're here and you are plagued by the reality of sin that seems to be getting the best of you, hear this word from the Lord. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep on going because God promises to use that as the foundation of your hope. See, the the greatest hope that we have here this morning is not that we're not sinners, but the fact that we are sinners and Christ loves and delights to save sinners. That's the foundation of the Christian life. So what does that mean for us and our past? It means that your past, everything that you struggle with, whether it was 10 years ago or 10 seconds ago, is crucified with Jesus Christ, right? Your past died on the cross with Jesus. That's what Galatians 2.20 tells us. I have been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, The foundation of our hope is not that we are not sinners, but that we are sinners. But God loves sinners, and that is a doorway to hope. And he promises in your life, as you fix your hope on that spot, to turn your greatest failures into a doorway of hope. That's the good news of the gospel. A practical implication of that for us as a church is we don't have to be a group of people that used to struggle, right? This means that we don't have to conceal our wounds, right? We don't have to move away from our scars. We can be a group of people where our past is a testimony to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Judd Wilhite, who in his book Pursued, he tells the story, he's a pastor in Las Vegas, he tells the story of a woman who had a lot of pain and abuse in her life. And the way that she dealt with the pain and the abuse in her life, she was so hurting inside, she began to cut herself. She was into self-mutilation. Well, over the the course of her life, she intersected with this church and her life was changed. But you could tell like there was still some deep brokenness going on because she had just shredded her arms. It didn't matter in the desert. She lived in Las Vegas. She would wear long sleeve shirts all the time. She didn't want anybody to see her scars. So finally she came up to Judd and she said, how, she had a a three-year-old daughter. How am I going to be able to tell my daughter one day about the scars that I have? What am I going to tell her about this? And I thought this was profound and I think it has implications for us all. He says, I said, you should look her in the eye and say, these scars mean your mom survived. I did some things I regret, but I'm alive because of God's grace. And these scars remind me of how far I've come. And then he goes on to say, embrace your scars, no matter how painful they are. They tell the story of your survival. So our past, when put up against the backdrop of the cross, tells the story not only of our survival, 
but Christ's victory on our behalf. And they become a testimony to the world around us of God's power. So we don't want to be those that just be a, a group of people that used to struggle. No, we are a group of people that have been ransomed and saved and transformed by the grace of God. He's going to turn our greatest failures into a doorway of hope. All right, now let's look at verses 16 and 17. Next, we see that his love captivates and renews our hearts. Verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. These words are powerful words of the promise of transformation. I mean, the problem of the people of God were, were so deep. Um, we mentioned earlier in the series that this was a very affluent time for these people. And instead of seeing all the things that they were experiencing, peace and security and prosperity, instead of seeing those as things that came from the hand of God, they began to thank Baal, who was basically the rain god and the fertility god. They began to take all the things that God had done and they began to transfer those to Baal. So this is, this is a, a stark misplacement of worship. But the promise is even more powerful. What God says essentially is, I'm going to break the power of sin in your life. I'm going to break the power of sin in your life in such a way that you no longer have even the memory of your false lovers. That's a massive promise, right? God is saying here this morning, as you continually focus on that day, and that day is the cross, as you continually focus on that spot, I am going to change your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new passion and new desires. No longer will you be dominated by the sins that cling so closely to you, you will be defined by my love. And then it's just this wonderful promise of relationship. No longer will you call me my Baal. Now you will call me my husband. And that is a term of intimacy. That is a a term of communion, right? This is God's promise to say, I will give you the most satisfying relationship you could ever want. That's the good news of the gospel. Not only does he forgive us, he also frees us and he changes our hearts. So he promises to change us from the inside out. He promises to renew our hearts and to even erase the memory of the pleasure of sin. His love is the only thing that can change us. His love, every time that it is observed every time that it's experienced his love makes the unlovely lovely his love makes the unfaithful faithful his love makes the broken whole his love makes the defiled clean so this morning what is it that so captures your heart What is it that keeps you from experiencing that kind of love? Hear God's promise. He will renew and captivate your heart by the power of Jesus Christ. So whatever you are facing here this morning, let us lay them at the feet of the only one that can change us and satisfy us. So... 
the way that God breaks the sin cycle and the shame cycle in our lives, he deals with, first of all, our past. Then he deals with our hearts. And then I'm going to close with this. He deals with our fears. God truly never wants us to be afraid. He speaks to the heart of our fears. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says, And I will make for them a covenant, that is a promise, on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the grounds. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the lands. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Now, this language may seem a little bit distant to us, but basically what God is saying is on that day, on the day of the cross, I'm, I'm going to bring everything in all of creation under my rule and my reign. I'm going to bring peace I'm going to bring safety. I'm going to bring security. He says, because I don't want you to ever be afraid. And um, it's pretty easy for us to think, as we talk about things like Baal, the storm god, and the fertility god, to think, like, what in the world are these people even thinking, right? I mean, God took them, right? And he took them out of the land of Egypt, and uh, he parted the Red Sea, and he gave them the promised land. Like, why in the world would they turn away from him to worship the person that's supposed to bring rain and the storm and all those things. And really, I think a big reason that God communicates in this way is because fear is really what drives idolatry. Like all of the things that we run to are fear-driven. We have lots of words for it. Concern, worry, doubt, insecurity, right? But most of our dysfunction happens because we know that the world is broken like we know that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be, but we tend instead of to run to God, we tend to run away from God to other things. So he says, I, I want you to know that I have taken care of every broken thing on the planet. And I'm in the process of making everything new. So you don't have to be afraid of the world. That's what they were afraid of, that God wasn't going to provide for them. So they turned to Baal, who was supposed to bring rain. And he said, you don't have to worry about people around you. You don't have to worry about relationships. I'm I'm going to bring peace and security. And that's what we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. We have this idea that God did not withhold his own son, but he gave him up for us all so we can also freely trust him to give us all things. So what are you here this morning? What are you most afraid of? Is it losing your job? Is it losing the approval of another person? Maybe it's you're afraid of yourself. Maybe it's afraid, you're afraid of your heart. God wants to speak these words into your heart. Listen to verses 19 and 20. This is his promise. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. That's a righteousness that he gives. And in justice that he poured out on Jesus. In steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. So this is a promise 
for all those that place their hope in Jesus Christ. I don't know where all of you are here this morning, but the truth is, as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are secure in him forever. There is no one that will be able to snatch you out of his hands. There is no sin that can take you away from his love. In these moments, he wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that because he has poured out his wrath on Jesus, there is none for you. And you can have this relationship of peace and security and of joy and of life. God has pledged his faithfulness to us in his son. So his work is complete and it is total His love speaks hope into our failures. His love speaks transformation into our hearts. And his love speaks peace into our fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. I pray that just in these moments as we transition to a time of singing and communion that you would arrest our hearts, that you would speak to our failures and our fears, and that you would change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.